0: We're going to continue our series called "The Mothers of Jesus." There are five women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus' genealogy is kind of like his it's kind of like his resume. So what Matthew's telling us is you can't possibly understand the Jesus that was born on Christmas Day to Joseph and Mary unless you look at his family tree. So rather than looking at all the names in Jesus's family tree this Christmas, we're looking specifically at the five women who are mentioned. We've looked at Tamar. Last week we looked at Rahab. Today we're going to look at uh, the story of Ruth. So we'll start off in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and then we will look at some excerpts from the story of Ruth. Ruth is a book of the Old Testament. It's four chapters long, so hopefully if I do my job the right way today, it will inspire you maybe this week to go back and read the book of Ruth with a little bit more uh, understanding and maybe some appreciation for what to do with a lot of the cultural details that are in there. Uh, Let me to you from our, from Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, okay? So we're picking right up where we, where we left off last week. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, some of these names may start to get familiar to you. Obed was the father of Jesse. Is that familiar? Okay. Jesse was the father of... King David, of David and Goliath, also of David and Bathsheba, Uriah's Uriah's wife. Um, We'll tackle that one next week. Uh, But but, uh, so what we're going to look at, we're going to look at the story of David's great-great-grandmother today, Ruth. And this is part of connecting the family tree of Jesus. Uh, The story of Ruth really is about um, some issues that you probably have never thought about before, issues like immigration issues of uh, interracial marriage, issues of hopelessness, and redemption. That's really the whole story of Ruth. It's a story of immigration. There's actually two stories of foreign immigrants, two immigrations that happen in the story of Ruth. It is a story of interracial marriage. It is also a story of deep levels of hopelessness and economic um, poverty. And then it finally, it's a really kind of a heavy, dull, mundane, tough read until the last, <laughs> the last section of the book. But that's really what's going on in Ruth. So let me give you the big idea and then some, a couple questions that we're going to try and tackle together this morning in varying degrees of detail. But at least these will be good study questions for you when you go back and read Ruth. You can fill in some more detail on your own. The big idea that I'm pulling out of, of this particular part of the Bible today is this. Unconditional, non-exclusive love combined with powerful friendship are generally, not always, I know some of you are literalists and you're going to give me all the outliers and exceptions for this. You can hold your email. I'm just using the word generally. Okay? These are generally what cause people to be converted to Christianity, not simply sermons, programs, and presentations. Okay? Unconditional, non-exclusive love. In other words, love that's shown to people that you're not obligated to love. Non-exclusive Unconditional love and powerful friendship are generally two of the primary ingredients that cause somebody in your life who doesn't know Jesus to surrender their life to Him. It's not simply sermons, programs, and presentations. It's those things working together in a sense of credibility. Those other two things are what give you credibility. Non-exclusive, unconditional love and powerful friendship that makes what you believe about God very credible. And those things make any presentation, any program, any sermon, any presentation of the gospel, that's what makes those things more powerful. Here's a couple of the questions we want to examine today. Um, number one, what are the three stages in the story of Ruth? Number two, why did Naomi change her name from Naomi to Mara? Question number three, what is very unusual about Ruth's loyalty To Naomi. Question number four. What is the significance of a kinsman redeemer? We see that story in there. And then we'll give you a couple. uh, uh, Question number five. How does the book of Ruth address those of us who feel as though life is tough, mundane, and absent of any sign of answered prayers? And then a couple concluding statements at the end. Um, Question number one. What are the three stages of the story of Ruth? Um, If you actually did some homework this week and you read the very beginning before the part... um, before the part that we're going to pick up here in a second, um, you would have gotten a lot, you would have gotten a lot of names and details that maybe in our modern reading missed out. Let me read some of it to you. Ruth chapter 1, I'll read verses 3 through 5, then verses 11 to 13, and finally verses 16 and 17. Then Elimelech died. Elimelech, backstory, Naomi's husband, okay? Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, okay? And the other married a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Milan and Killian, these are the two sons, they both died. So here's what happens. Na- Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech. She has exactly two children. They're both boys. They both take Moabite names. And over the course of a decade, all three of the men in her life die, okay? Then this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. You might skip over that, but in Jewish world, that's like a death sentence. That's the worst possible situation any woman could find herself in. Too old to be remarried, too old to have children, nobody to provide for her living as an as a immigrant in a foreign country of Moab. But Naomi replied a few verses later. There's a there's this little scene that happens in between here um, where where Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, stay here in Moab, I, I'm not going to burden you anymore. I'm going to go back home and live the rest of my life as a beggar. I'm going to move back to Israel and go back to my hometown of Bethlehem. And Ruth says, uh-uh, I'm going with you. Here's what Naomi says, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up and be your husband? Of course not. My daughters, return to your own parents' homes, for I'm too old to get married again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Are you going to wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry some other guy? Of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me. Bitter uh, is the Hebrew word mara. Things are far more mara for me than for you. Because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Have you ever just been in a bad season of life and you were convinced that God just is raising his fist against you? This is exactly where Naomi was. And she's saying, here's, this is an incredible thing she's saying. I want to plant a seed that I want to water in about five or six more minutes. Here's what Naomi is saying. Even though I need you, Ruth, to come with me and work and take care of me, even though you're pretty much all I have left, my life would be better for me if you came with me. Your life will be worse for you if you come with me. And I would rather you go back to your parents' house because if you stay here in Moab, Ruth, your life will be better and mine will be worse. If you come with me, my life will be better, but yours will be worse. And Ruth, your, life is more, your needs are more important than mine. That's what she's saying to Ruth when she says, don't come with me. Here's what Ruth says in return. You might have heard this in weddings said in a different context. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And this is coming from the mouth of a pagan. And your God will now be my God. What that is, ladies and gentlemen, is a conversion. She's saying, I don't want the gods of Moab anymore. I don't want the people of Moab anymore. I don't want to be with idol worshipers. I want to be with people who worship God like your God is. She says, wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And this is where we usually stop in the weddings, but there's another sentence here. (laughs) May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Here's what she's saying. She's saying, Ruth is saying, I'm giving up my better life for a worse life. What immigrant do you know leaves their country in hope of a worse life? Many of you immigrated from another country to the United States, Many, many of you here in our congregation, and I've heard some of your stories. And one common thread runs through most of the stories that I've heard. You all came here thinking this would provide you better opportunities or advantages than what you had in your native country. Maybe better education, different work. You came here for different reasons. Most people you talk to, they, when they leave one country for another, it's because it's going to give them an opportunity to advance in life. Ruth is doing the exact opposite. If she stays in her country, she has advantages. If she leaves, she's going to be a racial outsider who the book of Deuteronomy says should be put to death by those people. She's going to take her very life in her own hands. She is going to have to deal with with racial prejudice and violence, the possibility of rape or physical torture and abuse. She's going to be marginalized and set on the outside. She's going to have to risk going. If she goes out in public, she takes her life in her own hands to go back to Israel. And she says, I will choose that. She says, may God deal with me if anything except death separates us. She was preparing for the anything. This is a really, really, really heavy passage. So so what are the three stages of the story of Ruth, really? You can just summarize it by the names. Stage one is pretty much Naomi's emptiness. That's what we see in the first part of the book, how empty Naomi was. The second scene you'll see is Ruth's courage. So you have Naomi's emptiness, and that sets up the second scene where we see how courageous Ruth was, which sets up the third scene for Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. So you have stage one, Naomi's emptiness, stage two, Ruth's courage, stage three, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. So what's going on here? At the beginning of the book, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, married Naomi, and they had two sons, and they, they were living in Israel. Bethlehem, to be specific. And they had land, and there was a famine that fell on the land. Backstory. In the book of Joshua, when the Israelites moved into the land and they conquered and they moved in the promised land that God said they were going to have, what God instructed them to do was to divide up all the land and assign every family a piece of land. Every family got land. And so Elimelech Inherited land. He was given land by the Lord, and that's where he lived with his wife and with his two sons on the land that they owned. Well, when famine fell on the land, the land was not producing what it used to produce. And so, in Elimelech's mind, this was a zero sum game. I stay here with my family, endure this famine in the land that God gave us, and probably die because it's not going the way that I think it should go. Or I can sell my land, use that money to finance our relocation, and we can move to the land of the Moabites. Now, they don't worship our God. They worship other idols. They don't have the covenant. But but from what I hear, the weather's good over there. And so basically what he does is he gets to a point in life where he follows God, Elimelech follows God up until God isn't delivering what he thinks God should deliver, and then he cashes in and cashes out. Sells the land, takes the money, moves with Naomi, And they moved to Moab. In fact, when we see the names of his two sons, those are not Israelite names. Those are Moabite names. So the indication is that not only did Elimelech leave their land and leave their country and immigrate to the land of the Moabites, but he left his God as well. And he thinks he's getting into a better situation. Why is he immigrating? Because he thinks weather's better, job opportunities better, land's better. So he sells the land that God gave him, takes the money, relocates, has two sons. So Elimelech, Naomi, and the two boys go to Moab. And the very thing they're running from is what they run into. They're, they find tragedy and poverty. Over a span of 10 years, first Elimelech dies and then both boys die. Before the boys die, they marry two Moabite women, Ruth. And Orpah. And so now these three men are out of the picture, and Naomi is left penniless, widowed, sonless, and all she has is two Moabite daughters-in-law. And she has to think through what are the possibilities for her to survive economically. In any other situation, she basically has, she basically has four opportunities. She can she can work the fields but she's too old to do that. She can get remarried. She's too old to do that. Her kids could take care of her, but they're all dead, and all she has left are two Moabite daughters-in-law. Or the last thing she could do is take whatever equities that she has and liquidate them. She could sell her land and use that money, or she could rent her land. She could take the land that God gave her family, and she could rent it out to other farmers and live off the income, but they already sold it. She is a widow, and as we learned in the story of tomorrow, widows were the most socially and economically vulnerable women out of this time. Back then, education meant nothing, but family was everything. You better have a family. You better have sons. You better have heirs. And she has none of that. And the only people left in her life are not blood relatives to her. They are daughters-in-law. They are essentially friends to her at this point. So she's left alone. She's a poor old widow with two widowed daughters-in-law. And if they return to Israel... She goes back to her homeland and she brings, if the daughters go back with Naomi, they would be hated and they would be scorned as Israel's most hated enemy. So we see the emptiness, the absolute emptiness of Naomi. Which sets up question number two, why did Naomi change her name tomorrow? If you kept reading the story and you get to verse 19, I'll read it to you, you don't have to turn there. We find out that that, uh, Naomi does return to Bethlehem and Ruth insists on going along with her as we read. Orpah does not. So Naomi, Naomi returns to her homeland of Bethlehem. And when she comes back, her family, well, not her family, but the people who knew her, the ladies who were there, start recognizing her, and we get a, a window into their conversation. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. There's so much also in this story about who her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson was going to be in Bethlehem. It's another story for another day. Um, When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi, the women asked. They hadn't seen her in a while. And they hear that she's coming back. They didn't know if she was dead or gone or what had happened. She left for the Moabites, and here she comes back. Is it really Naomi? And here's what she says. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made my life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. This is not a good bedtime story. This is really heavy. And you know what? To be fair, she had a pretty rough life. Some of you can identify with losing a spouse. Some of you can identify with losing children. It's not easy. You will ask the very, very same questions. You will wonder the very, very, very same things. You may draw some of the same conclusions that Naomi's drawing here. She's saying, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. Because I was full and now I'm empty. Now she's saying all this, mind you, while Ruth is standing right next to her. And isn't it amazing that we can get so consumed with how bad things are, we miss the blessing of God standing right next to us. More on that later. So this is... This is, that's why she, she changes her name. But it's, you know, it, it sets up, though, it kind of it sets up this next part of the story, which is the courage. You, now you really see the courage of Ruth. Because on the one hand, Naomi has been stripped of everything that's, everything that's in her identity. She's been stripped of everything that's important. She's been stripped of her family. She's been stripped of her land. She has been stripped of her name. She's been stripped of all of it. But standing right next to her is Ruth. And, you know, Ruth shouldn't be standing here for all intents and purposes. Naomi had had already told her daughters-in-law, go back to your parents' home. You understand what widows did? If they couldn't remarry, they didn't have kids, they were still young. You could still have a life is what Naomi is saying. You can still have a life. Go back to your parents' home. Stay in Moab. You're a racial insider here. There's no persecution for you here. Surely some other young man will come along and marry you, and you can have kids and have the life you always dreamed. There's options for you here. There's financial security for you here. And Orpah says, you're right. Peace. She went. She left. Ruth says, not so. In fact, not only am I not going home, I'm converting. I'm converting. And I'm going to go with you. And what she's saying, she's actually writing her own. She's really writing her own death sentence. Because she realizes Naomi can't ever get her life back unless I throw mine away. But she loved Naomi that much that she was willing to give up the security and the comfort and the guarantee of the life she had in front of her. She was willing to put that aside. She was willing to put her own life aside in order to give somebody back the life they couldn't get for themselves. And in that way... (laughs) Doesn't Ruth point us to Jesus? A guy who said, I will give up heaven. And I'll give up all the titles and the responsibilities and the privileges, and I will humble myself, and I will go, and I will give my life away in order that Phil and Brian and HA and Katie, in order that they can have a life back that they never even knew. They can have the life back that they never even knew that they could have. The life that they lost, that they can't get back for themselves. So we see Ruth's courage. On top of being a widow, she's going to be targeted for racial violence. So she had, uh, she had a really tough thing. That's what's really so unusual about her loyalty to, to Naomi. It's what makes verses 16 and 17 more remarkable. She says, she says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I'll die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. She's willing to plunge into an unsavory arrangement as an immigrant, knowing that her life will actually be worse than if she returned to her homeland. Total opposite, total, complete opposite of the way that most people approach the idea of immigration. So that sets up the third and final stage of the story, and that's where we meet a a young man named Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. So, uh, here's what happens when they go back to Bethlehem. Ruth immediately goes to work to support herself and Naomi. And uh, let me hold that thought for a second. I, I just threw out a term I didn't define. Kinsman, redeemer, may not be something you use around the job place may not be a status or, uh, you know, your occupation you put on Facebook, may not be part of your LinkedIn profile. Let me just give you a quick, it's not really, a, you know, a, a, a North American term we use a lot. Kinsman Redeemer. So, um, so I told you earlier when they moved into, I'm trying to give you the Reader's Digest version on this, because I can really nerd out on this stuff, So as you well know, so I'm going to try and not do that. Um, so when the Israelites came into Israel, In the book of Joshua, when they divided up the land, God gave every family a piece of land. Are you with me so far? Here was the thing. God also, in His infinite wisdom, knew that that land probably wouldn't be in that family for eternity. He knew that different people may fall into different types of hard times or get different types of ideas, and that that land might be sold or exchanged or traded or liquidated time after time after time after time. And so God put in two legal provisions To make sure that if you lost your land or sold your land that you weren't doomed to uh, generations of impoverishment. God put in two legal provisions to make sure, um, this is a whole other sermon in and of itself, he didn't want there to be a great disparity between the haves and the have-nots among his people. But he recognized that that could probably happen. So two things he put together. One was the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, all the land went back to the heirs of the original family. It all went back. Okay? So every 50 years on the year of Jubilee, even if your family had lost their land 30 years ago, it was deeded back to whoever the the oldest living heir to the original family was. But 50 years is a long time to wait. So there's a second legal provision. The other legal provision is that if you lost, sold, however, you don't have your family's land anymore, the kinsman redeemer could buy it back for you. So you don't have to wait 50 years. The kinsman redeemer had to be a blood relative to you somehow, some way. They had to be willing to take on the debt and actually purchase it. And they had to make sure that there were actual living male heirs to the family so that it could stay in the family. What Ruth has no idea of is that there is a man living near where they settled by the name of Boaz, who actually is somehow in the family tree, a blood relative to Elimelech and Naomi. She doesn't have any idea. So she goes back to work gleaning in the fields. Another word we don't use a whole lot. Let me, uh, so gleaning. Um, I've taught on this on a different topic before. Uh, landowners were not allowed, says the Lord, to maximize profits. In other words, if you had a square piece of land and you grew grain, as a landowner, the law forbade you. God says you may not harvest every last shaft of grain. You, can't, you can go the whole way up to the edges, but you leave the edges alone so that the poor can come and glean, so that they can at least have something to be able to eat and to provide. And so you didn't maximize profits. You left place to glean, and Ruth takes up the job of gleaning. And one day she happens upon the particular field owned by a man named Boaz. She has no idea who Boaz is. She's just gleaning in the fields. Now, you have to understand, this is very, very, very dangerous for Ruth to do. And when Boaz checks in on the day's operations and sees Ruth, all through Ruth, she's called Ruth the Moabitess. Everybody knew she was a Moabite. And it was very dangerous. So much so, Boaz recognized how dangerous it is. And he goes up there and he says, my daughter. He noticed that she was an outsider, but he says, my daughter, to her. First thing he says. Picks her out of the crowd. Says, my daughter. He says, don't go glean anywhere else because it's not safe. You come back here and you glean here all the time. I've already instructed my men not to harm you, not to put a hand on you. In other words, Boaz knew his own employees would probably want to rape her or kill her. He says, I've already told them they're not allowed to do it. But he goes further. He says, you're welcome to help yourself to any of the water that my workers have pulled from the well. And here's what he says, don't glean anymore. You You now get to harvest. You're promoted to a harvester alongside with my other hired women. In other words, you don't have to get what's left over. If you come back to my field, you'll be safe, you'll be hydrated, you'll be protected, and you don't have to wait for the gleanings. You can come and get from the harvest. So she doesn't need him to tell her twice. She loads up. And she goes home, split out, gives it to Naomi. Look at all this grain. And Naomi's immediately suspicious. "Uh, That doesn't look like gleanings. Like, what what are you really doing to get all that grain? And and, and so she retells the story. Ruth tells her, well, this is a really nice guy named Boaz, and he noticed that I'm, he, you know, here's this wealthy landowner who took notice of a poor immigrant. And He gave me a seat at the table I couldn't have gotten for myself out of his own privilege. And he gives it to me. And Naomi hears the name Boaz, and she says, this is our Goel. Goel is a Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer. She's like, do you have any idea who he is? She's like, no, this is a nice guy. She's like, Boaz could be our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. And Ruth's like, what is a kinsman redeemer? So Naomi breaks it down for her. She's like, listen, here's our only shot. Here's how we can get our life back. It's like, Boaz not only can make sure we're fed for today, Boaz is maybe the only person that we've met. There might be some others, but he's the only one. If there's anybody in the world that can help us, it's Boaz. But here's what he would have to do. In order for Boaz to really, really redeem Naomi's life, a couple things. First, he has to buy back Naomi's land from whoever had it. And he could do that if he wanted to take on the debt or make the payment. Secondly, he would have to marry Naomi and raise children with her. Naomi's too old to get married, and she's barren. She can't have kids anymore. Then the other thing, that he because you see, Naomi has no more children. It wouldn't stay in her family. After this generation, it would be gone. There's no other heir. So it doesn't redeem the family. She has to have male heirs. There's only one other possibility, and that is that Boaz would buy the land back and marry the the next one in Naomi's line, which would be Ruth. The problem with that is Ruth is a Moabite, and according to Deuteronomy 23, you don't marry Moabites into the kingdom of God. So this is the reality, but they spring into action anyway, and so they come up with a plan. Ruth goes to Boaz's, Boaz's tent where he's at at night. And Boaz is asleep, and he's covered up with a blanket. And uh, what we read in the story is that Ruth, while Boaz is asleep, Ruth sneaks in there, uncovers his feet, and lays down at his feet. And he wakes up, and he's uh, startled, because here is a Moabite woman laying at his feet. Makes no sense to us. We don't do this in the States. We shouldn't do this in the States. You don't go in a stranger's house and uncover them and lay at their feet. Uh, what do we do with this? Uh, this was a cultural thing. What she, was, what she says when he sits up and he's startled, is, she says, cover me. And what that's actually saying is, marry me. And in some cultures today, this is still kind of the formal way they go about of engagement. What she's really saying is, Boaz, I want you to marry me. And I want you to redeem Naomi. And I want you to give us our life back. And I want you to give us our, 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 our land back. This is an amazing ask that she is making of Boaz. He, and she and basically, but if there's anyone else in the world that can do it, he says, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth. Cover me. Marry me. She's like, you are my Goel. You are the kinsman redeemer. And you know how he answers her? He says, I will do everything you ask. Boaz was a redeemer. And so he marries her. He takes on their debt. He gives Naomi her life back. He gives Ruth her life back. Actually, He doesn't just give them their life back. He gave them the better life they didn't even know that they could have, that they wouldn't have asked for, but that God had in mind. Once they left their own agenda for what their better life could be, God brought into their life the better life He hadn't imagined for them, and it was better than anything they would have concocted on their own. Not only that, but Ruth has a baby who has a baby. Who has King David. And now Ruth, the Moabite outsider, has an interracial marriage which is grafted into the family tree of Jesus. And you see, the issue isn't that she was a Moabite and that you shouldn't marry outside her race. It was that the Moabites didn't believe in the true God. And she converted from pagan worship to God worship. And the principle is still the same today and that we shouldn't marry outside of our faith But she's grafted in. She's grafted in to the family tree. And the moment, here's the beautiful thing, the moment that Boaz says, I'll do everything you ask, Ruth, through no effort of her own, instantly received all of his wealth, all of his name, all of his favor, all of the land, everything, instantly, completely, automatically. What a great way to understand what happens when you surrender your life to jesus and he redeems you you get all of his wealth all of his favor all of his blessing all of his joy all of his forgiveness instantly and automatically and permanently through no effort of your own but just through his great joy and his love amazing amazing story so um you know just a couple of couple of concluding statements i'll just give you two i just love the fact that all three of these people are spliced into the story of the messiah Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth. I just, I just love it. Two statements I want to leave with you this morning. One is that there is absolute life-changing power in friendship. And I know I can kind of feel the collective eye roll. Like, okay, yeah, go out and be a nice person, make friends, and be buddies. and yeah, You don't get it, and neither do I, really. What converted Ruth from being a Moabite to being a follower of God? It wasn't because she was promised a better life. It wasn't because she was promised, that, "Hey, if you come to the altar and pray the sinner's prayer, you know your husband's going to come back from the dead, and you're going to become wealthy, and your skin's always going to be clean, and you'll never age." And she wasn't given any. She converted to Christianity not as a result of a ser- or, uh, converted to following the one true God, not as a result of a sermon that Naomi preached. It wasn't as the result of a tactic. All we know about this conversion, what precipitated it, the thing, the conversation right before her conversion is this. Or Naomi basically says to Ruth, even though my life would be better if you threw yours away, your life would be better if you throw mine away, and your needs are more important than my needs. Naomi, out of a deep level of friendship and love for Ruth, sacrificially puts Ruth's needs above her own well being. And that type of love put credibility on the God that Naomi obviously still served, even though she thought that God was mad at her. And what changed Ruth's mind? She's like, this woman loves me in a way that nobody has loved me before. This woman elevates my needs in a way that nobody has elevated my needs. This woman has been here for me through thick and thin, up and down, time and constancy, the two primary ingredients of a friendship time and constancy, somebody that has been there for you and you've been there for them over a long period of time. And how many of those people do you really have an opportunity to meet in your life? Not many. I was talking to the elders today. I said the longest friend that I've had, the longest duration of somebody who would pass that test, time and constancy, somebody that has been there for me and I've been there for them, I've been for them, I've been with them, we are still connected this day, eight years. That's not a sob story, it's just a reality. Even the guy, every single person, that—that that my guys in my wedding, my best man, everybody, except for my brother, I've heard from one of them in the last 10 years. Is there issues? Was there a falling out? No, it's just they all moved. I mean, one lives in Arizona, one lives in Ohio. I don't talk to them all the time. We friend each other on Facebook and never talk. I mean, it's like you have friends like that. Like, oh, we're friends, great. Uh, nice pictures of your kid and what you ate for dinner last week, but that's about all I know. I want you to see, and I think you recognize this, friendship is one of the most powerful vehicles on the face of the earth. It is probably the most effective doorway into sharing your faith with somebody's relationship, but not just relationship or acquaintance. I mean friendship, deep friendship. I read a stat this week that the average adult has an opportunity to develop between four and six friendships like we just described over the period of life. Well, I have 250 friends. Not like that you don't. And it was out of that friendship that Ruth sees past the doctrine into the deep heart faith of someone like Naomi and says, there is something so different about what she believes, even though she feels like God is angry at her, she won't reject him. And even though I could make sure the rest of her life is comfortable, she's more concerned about my well-being than hers. I have to serve God Because you see, when you love people like that, you make God credible. When you love the people you shouldn't love. So what about you? How does that look in your life? How do you respond? How do you treat the people who believe politically other than you do? Or the people who believe, uh, you know, people who believe even religiously other than that you do? People who root for the teams you hate, Right? And I want to be careful, I I get hammered pretty hard on this. I don't mean to suggest that the only possible response to someone who believes politically other than you do is to go be their buddy. Sometimes love means you have to put up boundaries for people that are going to cause you harm. But I am suggesting to you that perhaps there are some Ruths in your life that God's put there. Maybe there's some Naomi's in life that you can be a Ruth to. But there is absolute life-changing power and friendship, and I'll use a cliche, and good friends are really hard to find. So let's do friendship the right way. Let's do friendship the right way. If you're just coming to this church and you just sit in a seat and you never open yourself up to get to know another hum, human being, you're missing out on the traction you need to make it in life. God wired us to need that. I was talking with the elders beforehand. Men especially, one of the, you know, men especially, uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, You take friendship away, Uh, that's not a good statement to make. Let me think a little more carefully before I say that. I can connect it to some more recent studies, though, that say that, you know, many men deal with depression simply because of a lack of friendship. They don't have another man. And men are kind of weird. Men are not just going to go out and be like, you know what, I'm going to go make a friend today. And you stand next to someone in the hardware store and say, hey, let's be buddies. That's not how we do things. In fact, we won't even admit we need friends, and we won't admit that we're lonely, and, and it'll come out sideways. I will tell you among a lot of my colleagues as ministers, ministers are some, I don't mean this of myself personally, but I mean, I have a lot of ministers who struggle with mental health issues, and they don't have anybody to talk to about it, because if they talk to somebody in their congregation, well, that's inappropriate, you know, you're not going to go to people in your congregation and be like, listen, man, let me just tell you what I'm really struggling with, and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't see you on a Sunday now, I can't, I don't want to know all that, <laughs> Right? You are going to go to other ministers. Usually when, you, when other ministers go to other ministers about their problems, it ends up being a one-up competition. Well, let me tell you how bad I have it. You know, let me tell you about Arbor. i like, I'll tell you about Arbor. <laughs> it's great. You know, um, you know, come work at our church. It's great. Uh, but they get lonely because they don't know where to go to find friendship. Just to have some other people that you can be there for, and they can be there for you over long periods of time. It's a powerful vehicle. Powerful vehicle. Which is why it Echo, I mean, I hear all the time, hey, I want us to grow bigger, grow bigger, grow bigger. Okay, great. But you know what, if we grow bigger and we're just surface deep with people, we're going to be really, really wide and really shallow. I'm more concerned that if you come and be part of this family, that we help you make those meaningful connections, at least you know, at least that you can find a friend that you can be there for, and they can be there for you, and using those tools as, as evangelism. And then the final, final statement that I'll make, because I've got to close. final statement I'll make is this. Um, and it's really answered to question number five, how the book of Ruth addresses those of us who feel like life is tough, mundane, and absent of any sign of answered prayers. I just want you to see this. There's God's always working under the surface, even when it appears that he's absent. And I know those of you who don't need to hear this this morning are like, that's absolutely right. I can give you 10 stories. And those of you who need to hear this are going to kind of roll your eyes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I've heard it all before. Listen, one of you's Ruth. One of you's Naomi, right? Naomi was the one who said, don't even call me Naomi. Let me tell you how bad my life is. And she was just spitting facts. She wasn't exaggerating. She wasn't going on a Facebook rant about, you know, when really her, her coffee was a little cold and she had to give us a paragraph as to how bad her life is. That's not what Naomi's doing here. She's not on Facebook talking about how busy she is, spending 30 minutes crafting her post while she could be getting unbusy. Okay? She's spitting facts. My husband's died, my oldest son has died, my younger son has died, I'm poor, I have nothing left, I can't get married, I can't have kids, the only people that I'm connected to in life are foreigners, things are bad, God's mad at me. The whole time she's saying it, within earshot and arm's reach, is Ruth, this young lady who just days earlier Throws her entire life away to volunteer to be the personal provider and caretaker for Naomi at the peril of her own life. How can you at the same time be so convinced life is so bad when right within earshot and eyesight of you is somebody God put in your life that is the vehicle of his blessing for you? What I want you to understand is that the reason Naomi couldn't do it is she had an agenda for her life that God wasn't delivering. And because of that, it blinded her eyes to see what God was really doing. And I wonder if you're being blinded because there's a life you feel God owes you that he's not giving you. And you're so mad at what you're not getting that you're missing the very things he's put in your life to sustain you. And if you'll let go of this agenda, you will open up the pipeline for the better life you want that you didn't know to ask for that God has in mind. His better is better than your better. And until Naomi could really see that, then she could trace the whole way back to me and say, Wow, you mean all these little tiny microscopic decisions, way, this was really an avenue by which God, yes, not only that, but the part she didn't get to see is that if, if she doesn't open up this pathway, the seed, of, the seed of, of Abraham getting to Jesus stops right there. The ripple effects of this story continue right into the here and now this morning because through Boaz, through Naomi, through Ruth, Jesus Christ comes into the world, and he becomes, he becomes the true kinsman redeemer like Boaz. But the, even the bigger redeemer in the story was Ruth. She threw her life away so that somebody else could get their life back. Friend, I want you to understand that's the love that Jesus Christ has for you and me, for everybody else. He put his life aside asking nothing in return, he gave his life away in order that you could have your life back. So if you feel like life life is tough and mundane and, and, and God's not answering your prayers, those might all be facts, but I want you to look past the facts that you see and let go of the agenda that you have for your life and look at what's really there. What is it that God is saying that he is doing? He is working underneath the surface even when it seems like he is absent. Can we pray together this morning as I invite our worship team to come? I want to give an opportunity for anybody who's here this morning or who's watching online or listening to our podcast to make a decision to surrender your life to Jesus, to convert. Ruth came to a point in her life where she said, I don't want to be the same person I've been. I don't want to have the same values I've had. I don't want to live the same life that I'm living. Said, Ruth came to a point in her life where she looked into an example in front of her of Naomi, an imperfect flawed, broken person, but someone who still had a deep faith in the one true God. And she said, I want that God to be my God. I want his kingdom to be my kingdom, his people to be my people. And with that confession, she was grafted in, not only to the kingdom of God, but into the bloodline of Jesus Christ himself. So I don't care how outside you feel like you are. I want you to know that there is nothing in your life that would prohibit you from making a decision today to come into God's kingdom. The entryway is very simple. Admit, believe, choose, A, B, C. Admit that you've lived outside of God's kingdom and you're living life your own way. You you've sinned against God. Believe that Jesus is everything that the Bible tells us he is, the son of God who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross as our substitute in our place for our sins, who rose again from the dead so that today we can be accepted by His Father based on Jesus' resume, not based on our resume, and find that you choose to surrender to His leadership. I will tell you, many people like the A and the B, but not so much the C. They can understand that there's something wrong with them. They understand deep down in their heart, hey, something is broken about the world that we live in. Why do we need laws? Why do we have wars? Why do, we have, why, why do people tilt towards evil? We, we get it. People can even get intellectually around that Jesus was all the things that we say that he is. But when it comes to surrendering your life to Jesus, I think we like to separate that. That's part of what you bring because you can't believe that he truly is the king and then think that following him is optional. That doesn't work. It means you don't really think he's the king. You're volunteering to come into a new kingdom with a new leader. And if you do that, he will enter your life, friend. He will enter your life immediately, completely, automatically. And if you want to pray that prayer with me this morning, let me pray a prayer that you can... You can pray along with right wherever you are right now. Dear Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner. And I admit that I've been living my own life. I confess my belief in you as God's son. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. And I believe now that God will accept me based on your resume and your performance, not mine. I receive forgiveness from you today. And I thank you for lifting off of me all of the guilt and the weight of all of my past. And I invite you to come and make your home inside of me. I choose to surrender my life to you. You're in charge. I will live your way because I believe your way is the best way. Your better is better than my better. Thank you for saving me. Amen.